Today's episode is brought to you by Credit Collection Services. For your collection needs, choose Credit Collection Services. Serving the Yankton area for over 75 years. Don't settle for anything but the best. Welcome to Yankton's Yardbirds, a podcast presenting the World War II stories of Yankton's veterans. After 165 interviews and countless hours of preparation, it's time to share these stories. As of now, they'll be shared by podcast and later will be presented in print. If you have questions, free to contact me at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. Please be advised that there is some offensive language within these interviews. When I'm speaking, I've added my language to more modern times. In our last episode, the Japanese attacked Americans at Midway Atoll and at Wake Island. South Dakota's lucky 147th Field Artillery missed the attack at Pearl Harbor by a mere seven days. News of the attack shocked Americans from coast to coast. The shock was not over. America was about to learn the fate of the men and women in the Philippines. In mid-November of 1941, President Roosevelt ordered the Marines out of China. Warren Jorgensen and his 4th Marines were scheduled to depart on November 28th. At that moment, there were five divisions of Japanese soldiers surrounding Shanghai. The Marines, smartly dressed in their winter greens, marched from their billet to the Wangpu Quay. It was a cold and rainy day, observed Jorgensen. Atop each Marine sea bag was a field campaign hat, and in each man's hands was a 1903 Springfield rifle. On the way to the quay, American expats rolled out of the restaurants and fell in behind him. That was a crowd, said Warren. Also assembled on the sidewalks were women with their children. No doubt, some women had a relationship with a Marine smartly marching down that street. Those men would never return. Many of the bystanders ran alongside the marching men to catch one last glimpse. Warren wondered to himself about those Chinese civilians. How would they be treated by the Japanese? The cheering throngs created emotions of sadness and pride. There was an overpowering feeling the Chinese citizens loved the United States Marines. The Marines filled two presidential liners, the USS Madison and the USS Harrison. Warren and the Marine Band were aboard the Harrison along with a surprise guest. The Marines adopted a dog, Su Chao, and he snuck aboard in a typewriter box punched with holes. He survived the entire war. The original plan called for that ship to stop at Peking and Tienston. Once aboard ship, however, the men were told that the ship was directly headed to Alangapo in the Philippines. One of the liners would have to return to collect those other Marines. The moment was tense, too. On their way out, a heavy weapons company was ordered to assemble its machine guns on the liner's deck. The smoking lamp was out, which meant that the ship sailed with as little light as possible, including the ember of a cigarette. An American submarine escorted the ship. I was nervous, Warren admitted. The Marines arrived at the U.S. naval base at Alangapo on the 1st of December, where blackout conditions continued. The American forces on Luzon Island in the Philippines in 1941 were substantial, consisting of approximately 20,000 men, including the China Marines. But it clearly was not enough to fend off the Japanese Empire. America had several bases scattered around the island of Luzon. Fort Stotzenberg was created after the Spanish-American War as a cavalry base for American and Filipino troops. 
A portion of that base was later used to create Clark Field. The troops at Stotzenberg defended the airfield, which abutted up to Route 3. On the 26th of September 1941, the 149th Tank Battalion arrived at Manila Bay. It was composed of three companies, one of which was Company A from Brainerd, Minnesota. Company A, originally the 34th Tank Company, had been redesignated after the unit was nationalized in February of 1941. One of the 64 Brainerd boys was Walter Straka, who had enlisted the Minnesota National Guard in 1936 at the tender age of 16. Clark Field, located on the northeast side of the beautiful Zambales Mountains in central Luzon, was actually several small dirt landing strips. The 19th Bomber Group consisted of B-18s and B-17s and called it home. Robert Phillips, one of the men of the 28th Bomb Squadron attached to the 19th, described his surroundings as paradise. Manila, known as the Pearl of the Orient, was equally thrilling. He had some ample time for fun, such as climbing, exploring, riding horses. He paid a few posadas to ride a cavalry horse at Fort Stotzenberg. Alangapo, located in the north of the Bataan Peninsula on the west coast of Luzon, was an important naval base. Warren Jorgensen described it as a classy port with a deep water, beautiful lagoon. Both George Mock and Werner Clem arrived there after the war as part of the occupation. The port had been constructed by the Spanish in the 1890s, but it was relinquished to the Americans in 1898 after the Spanish-American War. A fourth base was at Fort Mills, located on the small island of Corregidor, a heavily defended five-mile tadpole-shaped island, which is referred to as the Gibraltar of the East. The island was fortified to defend Manila from naval attacks. Jorgensen said he was in awe of it. There was an amazing underground bunker known as the Malinta Tunnel. Also near Manila were Nichols Field, Fort William McKinley, and the Cabot Naval Base. Nichols housed the American Army Air Corps. McKinley was the home of the Army of the Far East, and Cabot was a naval repair facility. Dr. Nicasio Nixawi, a renowned South Dakota physician, had firsthand knowledge of the Philippines. Prior to the war, he lived about 200 miles north of Manila and about 25 miles away from the coastline of the Lingayen Gulf in the town of Agular which consisted of about 5,000 people in 1941. Nick, born there in 1928, fondly recalled that it was a peaceful town. His father, who was the mayor, had a comfortable salary that permitted him to purchase a lovely old Spanish-style home and to educate his children. Nick's sister was a teacher who taught in a school located in nearby San Fernando, and Nick attended the school there. They were all aware of the international tension, and Nick's father feared the Japanese. Even though the American-Filipino relationship was over 40 years old and quite strong, the relationship was in transition. America's possession of the Philippines began in 1899 after it was ceded by the Spanish as part of the end of the Spanish-American War. Within six months thereafter, the Filipinos revolted, and that guerrilla warfare and its bloodshed lasted for over three years. The Americans appointed a territorial governor with the intent of eventually granting independence. The Philippines became a commonwealth in 1935, and complete independence was to be granted on the 4th of July, 1946. Manuel Quezon was the first president. The American military intended to protect the country until 1946, when the National Philippine Army would take over. American bases remained under American control, which was a source of contention. President Quezon was distracted from the 10-year transition by the Japanese. Because of their expansive desires, he needed a defense plan. It was logical to ask the Americans for help, but their support waned, as demonstrated by the two competing American plans to defend the Philippines, which emerged from within the Defense Department. 
The Orange Plan called for a full-throated defense, which would be fought in the Bataan Peninsula. The Rainbow Five Plan, in response to a possible two-front war, called for the Americans to take a defensive posture, which amounted to abandonment of the Philippines if the Japanese invaded. Quezon rejected both plans. At that point, he realized that he needed military and political help, so he hired General Douglas MacArthur, who had retired from the American military in 1937. His new job was to act as Quezon's paid military advisor. And of course, Quezon stroked MacArthur's ego and named him Field Marshal, an absolutely unheard of designation in America. MacArthur's aggressive military plan to defend all of the Philippines was consistent with his bravado, and Quezon liked the plan. But both men quickly realized that they needed American help, and that assistance was not forthcoming. MacArthur needed to rub elbows with American military brass, but he was out of touch with Washington, D.C. because he was no longer active military. Quezon sensed this too, and he initiated a battle of words. He suggested that the Philippines could be neutral in a war between America and Japan, and threatened to cut his defense budget and to sack MacArthur. Quezon wavered back and forth, but eventually, in October of 1940, he formally asked the Americans for help. Four months later, MacArthur asked for help too. Still, no help. MacArthur was savvy, however. The Japanese were making noise in China. Near the end of May, he suggested that he would retire and move back to the States. Three days after the Japanese marched 30,000 troops into Saigon, MacArthur was brought back into the American military as commander of the Army of the Far East. His unified command also included control over 80,000-men Filipino Army, which was anemic, and the 20,000 well-trained Philippine scouts. Whether anyone knew it or not, Roosevelt's appointment of MacArthur, the accompanying orders to freeze Japanese assets, to end exports of oil, iron, and rubber, and closure of the Panama Canal to the Japanese ensured that a war would ensue. As of the 1st of August of 1941, the new official policy of the United States, according to General George Marshall, Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army, was to defend the Philippines against a possible Japanese invasion. MacArthur first heard of Rainbow Five plan in October of 41, but he rejected it. It appears that he took a two-step approach. In a best-case scenario, he would aggressively prepare the Philippines against an attack, which would dissuade the Japanese from attacking in the first place. And, in a worst-case scenario, if war occurred, he would fight the Japanese at the shoreline where they landed. MacArthur's aggressive defense plan was, amazingly, agreed to in Washington. But its highest obstacle was that it required considerable time to implement. It would be many months before more men, equipment, and supplies could be delivered. Several thousand soldiers arrived from America at the end of September. The 192nd Tank Company left America on the 1st of November, and the 4th Marines were relocated from Shanghai in November. But many more were needed. There were only two radar systems in all of the Philippines. The American Navy was ultra-weak too, with just three cruisers and 13 destroyers. There was a whiff of desperation from Washington. MacArthur was instructed to reach out to the British and Dutch in the region. Army leaders were even willing to try new strategies, which is fairly unique. For example, America had never contemplated using bombers on Luzon. At a joint conference between Roosevelt and Churchill in August of 41, Roosevelt was told that bombers were successful against the Germans. Shortly thereafter, there was an American rush to send B-17s to Luzon. By early December, 207 bombers had arrived along with a few fighter planes to provide cover. Progress was still slow. General Louis Brereton, 
who oversaw the Far East Air Force, only arrived on the 1st of November, and there were no anti-aircraft batteries at that moment in all of the Philippines. By mid-November, most of the American military leadership in the Philippines believed that a Japanese invasion was imminent. Brereton instructed 16 of his B-17s to fly south to the Del Monte airfield located on Mindanao and ordered the remaining planes at Clarkville be parked in a scattered fashion rather than in orderly rows to avoid sabotage. Marshall instructed MacArthur to act when there was, quote, actual hostilities, unquote, rather than wait for a declaration of war. Washington cabled all Pacific commanders, quote, that a surprise attack was possible, unquote. But MacArthur believed the message was vague. As a result, he refused to permit reconnaissance planes to fly over the Japanese-controlled Formosa, now Taiwan, because he considered the action to be, quote, overt, unquote. Nevertheless, the Japanese regularly flew planes over the Philippines. On the 30th of November, all forces located in the Philippines were placed on, quote, full alert, unquote. The last cable from Washington screamed that an attack was imminent. In our next podcast, you'll learn what happened on the infamous date of December 8th and follow the fates of Walter Straka, Warren Jorgensen, and Robert Phillips. If you are interested in sponsoring an episode of Yankton's Yardbirds, please contact David Hosmer at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. All content for this podcast was created by David Hosmer, and all production was performed by Eric Berenger. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yankton's Yardbirds.